section. Recording in progress. We're Jack, on. mate, thank you for joining me from the uh, independent country that is Western Australia. <laughs> uh, yeah. How is things going on in the uh, Western state of Australia? In the nanny state of, of Australia. Um, it's, it's good. I think we're, we're progressively behind everyone else, but we're, we're getting there. So, uh, <laughs> is it what's 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 it like now that COVID's kind of kicking off over there? Like, I shouldn't say yeah. this with a smile. That's really cruel because, like, you know, eighty-three mm. people have died of COVID since uh, this thing kicked off a couple of years ago. So, like, how is it over in Western Australia now that you know things are kind of opening up? I think I think it's one of those things where we okay, well, this is finally happening now, and we sort of look at the the rest of the world, not so much Australia, but you know what. Why don't we just get on with it a little bit sooner? I mean, there's these debates about the hospital system. I don't know. I don't actually watch the news. It's probably one of the first kind of <laughs> unique points. I, I don't. I, I don't watch the news. And if there's something that's significant enough, it'll obviously come to my attention through word of mouth. But I, I think the time and investment, in your opinion, to try and understand what's going on is so much effort in itself. So. Something I stay away from, so I'm not the best person to ask about no, COVID. No, <laughs> it's, it's a great response. Like I respect that so much. I literally had that conversation mm. with my wife over dinner today. Really, <laughs> like, yeah. The amount you'd have to exhaust yourself to keep up to date with current affairs yeah. and everything going on. I love the. There was a meme the other day floating around that you know everybody. It was a uh, a what what is it? A COVID expert or a yep. uh, what's the word for the medical experts in COVID? how little I've paid attention oh, to it the, now. Um, um, epidemiologist. Epidemiologist. Yeah, 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 epidemiologist experts uh, yeah. overnight after Russia invaded Ukraine and now geopolitical experts and, like, you yeah. know, Russian Eastern European history experts. It's like, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. You, you'd yeah. have to major so much in that. That, like, yeah. how much time are you dedicating to life yeah. <laughs> and a it's, job? It's, and it's, it's, yeah. a, it's an interesting Topic because it's it's one of those things where I, I was involved with some media interaction during during the military time and what they reported on was was quite significantly different to what was actually happening just in a sense of trying to create a story out of something where it didn't actually happen as such not that there's any blatant sort of difference but it was definitely well if I was watching that not knowing what actually happened. Um, I would have a completely different opinion of what actually happened. So it was just one of those things. That I lost a lot of faith and trust in in the media platform. So I tried to steer away from it because I just think, well, how do you know what's what, what you're getting is the truth? So that's that's where that sort of came from, I guess. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really unique perspective, and I think that's a beautiful segue into mm. a bit of your backstory as an army infantry captain mm. and your time serving. For Australia, and that's it's such a true statement that you've just said, because yeah, I feel like unless you've had that direct experience, we've been on the ground in a situation, and then seen what is on the news, and going, ah, hang on a minute, mm. what you're saying is actually way more like you're trying to make it like sometimes it's they're trying to make it more interesting, like yeah. yeah, we just went in, we did what we needed to do, and that was it. It's like, oh, yeah. is there any juice? Is there anything? It's like we need yeah. we need a catch, we need a hook. It's like no, nope, we just. Did our jobs. Yeah. That's all we can mm. say, but they, they need to take it. So, obviously, we just touched on Army Infantry Captain, and mm. you're now currently studying and also working part-time as a mechatronic engineer. I hope that got, I got that right. That's, that's, that's a, a, a lot in just, you know, one sentence saying that. So, maybe we start yeah. with the Army and as an Infantry Captain, and obviously that's where, where you got to in the Army in the time that you served. Mm. First question around that. At what point did you go, yeah, I'm going to join the army? And was infantry captain what you aspired to or is that sort of just what happened? Yeah, it's not something I consciously joined up to do is join the army. I, I was at school. Um, we had an old Vietnam vet there, actually, and he submitted my application for me. Um, he must have saw some. Uh, something in me that, that thought might suit the mould of the military. Um, he just said, rock up in the in the city and do this test at this time. And I, I, I did that and it was an aptitude test and there's two pathways you can go as um, I think it was Jules that you had on, hey? He was on one of your other um, army boys. So there's a soldier, the route that he went, and those that listened to the episode would know that, that route. And there's an officer as well, which is through Royal Military College. Um, different time lengths, different sort of exposures to training, but... 
in terms of why I chose to actually go to the training, um, I didn't really have any idea of what I wanted to do, to be honest. It was one of those things where I was in this malleable state. I could have been pushed into any direction. I didn't have a set, I need to do this and it needs to be army. And I also didn't have a, I need to do a uni or I need, need to do a trade or something like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this was just the opportunity that came across. Um, and yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't brilliant in school. I didn't have the, the, the best marks. I wasn't outstanding to the point where, you know, university was really calling me. Um, so the army seemed like one of those things where I could use one of my strengths with like fitness and exercise and being outdoors. Um, and I sort of just tried to, Try to merge those, and yeah, the opportunity was there. So um, I, yeah, I wouldn't have changed it for the world to to get that first chapter out of the way. Yeah. I think it, to to do it as a first sort of block of career was was really important. Yeah, and you mentioned that there was sort of two pathways between what Jules took. Shout to Jules, yeah. um, and then what you did with the Duntry Military College. What are the major differences in those two pathways? Yeah, so just to sort of um, paraphrase what Jules would have said, the Soldier route um, is is a three month time frame with the initial training, and the officer route is eighteen months, so slightly longer. And those two blocks of training basically train you to be an uh, an all service soldier or an officer. So basic infantry skills, but you know the officer would specialize more in leadership, communication, planning, um, mission, mission execution, that sort of stuff. Um, at the end of those two time frames, three months and 18 months, you, depending on how well you do, go into your specialist training. So Jules uh, went into infantry, so he went to Singleton. I also went into infantry. And essentially, there's a school that you go to and you spend another six months there after your courses. School you go to and then after you finish those um, schools, you go to the real army and that's where I would have met Jules um, for that first time. So the soldiers then meet the officers for the first time. And essentially an officer has 30, 40, up to you know, 60 soldiers underneath them to, to lead as a position of lieutenant. So there's a bit of a try to summarize that as best as I could, but there's these yeah. two pathways and you come together, obviously at different time points, but that's the sort of, uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's the pathway to it. And are you all roughly the same age? As you meet at that point, yeah, most most guys are around twenty or so. We had, we yep. had a few guys that were twenty five to thirty, and some that were thirty plus. But most most of the boys are around twenty. Yeah, and yeah. and what was it like coming into you know that after that sort of officer level training, and now you're surrounded by your peers, but you're now leading them. Mm. But you know. Was that sort of your first foray into leadership experience or had you had some beforehand? Because I can imagine like rocking up to a bunch of your peers and you've only just met them and you've now had these different pathways. Mm. Um, was that an easy transition? Is everyone like, yep, no worries, we'll do whatever you say? Or was there like sort of like, I don't know, rapport building or like how do you get garner that trust in order to lead these guys into, you know, ultimately life-threatening situations? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's not something that happens overnight, that's for sure. Um, it, it's a strange training process and you go through the 18 months of Duntroon and everyone that you're training with is training to be an officer as well. So, so you're amongst you know, other you're leaders. Doing, yeah, you're amongst other leaders. So you're, 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 your assessments as such, if you're doing a, a, an assessment out bush or platoon attack or something like this, then the people on the ground they kind of know what the officer wants to achieve. So they try and achieve that individually within themselves. So that makes sense. So mm. it does make it a little bit easier. And you've also got your, they're your mates. So they want to help you pass that. They want to help, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to support that person going through their assessment. Uh, because if you fail that opportunity within that six month block of the 18 months, you know, because each class is six months, it gets a little bit confusing, but essentially you get one assessment every six months. And, if you fail that, you, you've got to repeat the class. So, you know, it can take longer than 18 months. And to get back to the, to the question, to go from that framework of a group to a uh, purely infantry mentality was different in the sense that 
infantry soldiers, they want to be there because they've chosen to be there. And there's mm. 40 or 50 of these very competent, um, very competent and very fit and very alpha kind of vibe. It, it, was, it was quite an intimidating environment to walk into. And, yeah, you rock up as the leader and they, they put you through your paces. And if you don't perform, then they'll, they'll make it really hard for you and they'll, they'll sort of steer you away from actually wanting to be involved in that command. But if you, if you focus on, I think, what the fundamentals of leadership are, just effective communication, empathy, and treating people with respect, if they feel that you have your genuine interests at, at heart, they'll, over time do anything for you and it's a really i think beautiful feeling as a leader uh, to 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 reap the rewards of that privilege of leadership to have a group of people that will will do what what you want them to do um not in a dictative sense but in a, in a very natural we want to help the group goal sense so yeah it was a very different dynamic but i really enjoyed being with the infantry guys once i got to the army because everyone was there to to do the infantry role and Jules talked about that what that role was and it was it was very yeah it's a very alpha kind of thing and it's a like a big footy team you're like you're going you're going it's like going to a um a training every every morning you know you get you get in your group and you talk about the day and you do some PT and it's it's just a nice environment so I enjoyed that mm. and what is the attrition rate of guys and girls going into that role of leadership like is there an attrition rate where people kind of do it and it just doesn't work out for them and they have to, I don't know, I'm assuming you can't change platoons and you kind of like what happens to those that kind of don't click with a team? Yeah. Is that a thing? It is a thing, yeah, for sure. Um, I, th- I think that it depends, on, it depends on the upper hierarchy. I mean, if you've got a, if you've got a boss or a boss, boss so we call it commanding officer or, you know, that pretty – pretty high level guys, if they assess that that's a, a hazard in any way, then they'll remove you from command. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, particularly with, if you're approaching a deployment. So mm. the year, the year or so leading up to a deployment for Af- to Afghan, for example, if they see that you're not a competent officer, then they'll have no hesitation in pulling you out and replacing you. So. And, and wh- yeah. how do they measure competence? Especially when, you know, you haven't actually been active. It's yeah. all been training. Like, how, how do they articulate and measure and what, is it, what are the metrics and sort of, I guess, the rubric for measuring that, that competence? Yeah, I, I guess the only real thing that's missing is the, the two-way firing range. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. th- there's a lot that you can assess without that. So, there's a lot of tactics. There's a lot of decision-making. There's a lot of, um, you know, communication and giving orders and, your resilience and your fitness and you know these things can be assessed quite quite accurately in barracks so there there isn't there is a an x factor element that you only see when you're over there which is the okay how am i actually going to feel when i get shot at or how mm. am i actually going to lead am i actually going to be um the leader that i want to be when i'm when i'm in that situation and that's that's something that you can't assess yeah you, you really can't and, yeah. and, and how, what was your gut feeling going into your, your first deployment? Yeah, I was, I was scared. I was, I was, you know. Fair. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I would, I would try and, I would try and not um, portray that too much. Mm. Not, not that it's a pure sense of weakness, because I think showing that vulnerability is, is an element of good leadership as well. So, how so? Well, I think to be a vulnerable leader is to show it's to show that you're actually human. Um, it's, it's to show the fact that you do have the capacity for empathy. So and I think emotional intelligence as a leader is one of the most, uh, one of the most I guess, aspired to traits in, in terms of my own perception of leadership. So for me, looking back on that, I would have probably preferred to be a little bit more open and have the discussion with guys about you know, feelings and how we're feeling and this sort of thing because I think we all – bottled it up inside and we all tried to be a bit too tough, um, which we know with mental health and that sort of thing, it doesn't really work too well like that. So, and, But it's so oil and water, chalk and cheese yeah, with yeah. the culture that you've already articulated is a certain type yeah. of personality that's going to join up 
uh, yeah. risk their lives and go into that is going to be a, a very specific type of personality mm. and drawn to a certain style of leadership themselves. Yeah. So I feel like how unnatural was that level of humility that you displayed within, you know, for lack of a term, the business within, you know, the, the armed forces? Yeah, it was, I look back on it now and there's so many things I would change. I mean, I was 21 when I was over in Afghan as a lieutenant there. So it was- Because we're all really mature when we're 21, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, mean I, I just think back to it. There was, there's, I'm proud of what I achieved when I was 21, um, for sure. But there's a lot of things that I would have liked, or more on the emotional level, to be mm. more competent emotionally. Um, not to say that I was this incompetent <laughs> like in my no, case, but, not at all. But, but certainly just to, just to criticise and play the devil's advocate to myself, it would be, um, I, yeah, I did, I did bottle it up quite, quite a lot. And it, was, it wasn't, um, wasn't until I probably got back that I found that a lot of that bottled up stress and anxiety and tension was kind of released. And, and you know, there was unhealthy ways that that was done when I got back and, that that's mirrored with a lot of a lot of veterans that come back, but there's there's a time when you're over there where I didn't really have the capacity, or I, I didn't I didn't think I had the capacity to share it because it was just kind of go go go. But for a lot of it, and then when I was resting, I didn't want to sort of talk about my feelings with anyone, and I didn't have a spouse back home or anything, so it was it was quite closed off. Yeah, so it did feel quite. You know, if I was more aware, you could say, yep, something's brewing here emotionally, should have done something about it. But hey, like hindsight, it's one of those things. So, yeah. Yeah, always the way. And I, I find from my own personal experience in life, nothing compared to what you've done and we're doing at that stage of your life is the people you're surrounded by and the community around you. Now, I say community, that's a nice buzzword. I meaning friends, close friends, I meaning family, uh, Partners, intimate partners, mm. and they can see you in a variety of situations and they can pick when you come home and you're a bit off. They know within two yeah. seconds. I remember my mum, textbook, I can walk through the door. Just by the way, I open the door. She's like, Oi, what's up? Yeah. What's going on? Something's off. Yeah. Like, get, 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 you know, 16 year old man was just like, Come on, just give me a break. I'm a yeah. 16 year old male. I don't know how to talk about that shit. Come on. Yeah. Um, but you're in an environment. Where you're all in the same environment, surrounded mm. by very similar people, twenty four seven. There's no yeah. respite. There's no variation to go. Oi, you're not coming out with the boys at the moment. What's going on? Yeah. Or you're, yeah. you're not you're coming home in a different way. You're carrying yourself different. Because I guess is it incorrect to say that you're kind of always on? Uh, yeah. It, it, yes and no. Like when I say it sounds a bit terrible. You say when you're on, no. you're on, sort of thing. You know, it's like you are really on uh, for some time and. Other times, you're sitting around doing kind of well, not a lot. Yeah, hurry up and wait kind of. It is actually a lot of hurry up and wait. That's a great way to put it. It's, um, it's, it's making sure that there's an anxiety behind the, yeah. behind the hurry up and wait as well because there's a, the have I planned everything properly? You know, and if I, my boss looks at me and he goes, well, you've had all this time, mate. Why isn't this you know, there? It's one of those, as a leader, anxiety-provoking things. You're so. on, but you're more in idle. Yeah, that's it's not right. that you're, that's the engine's right. not off. You're just sitting in in drive, ready to put your foot down on the accelerator yeah. at a given notice. You're yeah. still on theoretically. You're just not yeah. moving. Yeah, we did manage that by having because the, the platoon we call the combat team is broken up into different yep. you know, sections. Let's call it these sections. You rotate round on like a, a ready a ready section, so you can right. basically that section's ready to go at all times. You know, it, it only takes body armor on and you're out the door so that then there's no one sort of sleeping there's no one doing it. everyone's kind of ready the whole time so we rotate that around to to really give that rest in how long increments uh it'd be probably a 12-hour period um or a day period if there's not much active patrolling happening then you'd have yeah these sections basically on a on a ready kind of call out type um type group so through that with that patrol gap of no no intense patrols then you could you could rest your guys and i would try and filter into that rest as well but there might sometimes there'd be big campaigns or big pushes or big patrols where it would encompass the entire combat group so there wouldn't be much of that for you know sometimes weeks so. wow 
Yeah. You, you mentioned already hindsight. I think hindsight's a it's a, a, a beautiful pain in the ass. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. it's, it's, it's been and done. There's not much you can do about it. But mm. the perspective it gives on future decisions is always wonderful and, and welcome, even if the consequences of, you know, I could have done that, could have, should have, would have, yeah. which is never helpful, but moving forward. What would you have done differently? Would you have done anything differently in, say, like your first six months in leadership after graduating? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, the only thing I can, that really stands out to me is I would have, I would have targeted that, that emotional connection a bit more with my, mm. with my sergeant. So the way that the hierarchy works yep. in the headquarters, you have the platoon commander or that's what I was. And then you have a sergeant who's a very senior soldier, um, you know, sometimes 20 plus years. And then you've got your sections underneath that. And your sergeant is really your right-hand man with a lot of the discipline and the soldiers look to him for, you know, the no bullshit. If he says something, this is what happens kind of thing. And then you're more of the, the tactician and the, the, and the, the, um, the kind of strategic kind of element behind it all. But just to, just to highlight that dynamic, I think I would have connected a lot more on a, I guess, an empathetic level with, with a sergeant and, and with those key commanders. I, I think I was quite reserved and in my emotions, I was quite held back. And it's only with recent leadership experience that, you know, because in between studying now and leaving the army, I, I did quite an extensive um, oil and gas and offshore um, rotation and working in the oil and gas industry. And I, I reached a leadership position there. And I was able to, with a more mature headspace, really try and use some emotional intelligence and really try and get some sort of vulnerability in there and, and try to use that a little bit better in that sort of second wave of opportunity with leadership. And I found it to be a really, really effective tool. And I found it to be something where when I saw mental health kind of breaking down around me with the soldiers and post-traumatic stress and um, veteran suicide and this sort of thing, it really stood out to me that mental health and the way that you treat people is absolutely paramount. And if you can, if you can synergize that with your leadership style, then that's, that's a really effective tool. So I think to, as a long-winded answer to your question, I think to try and be a little bit more empathetic and to try and be a bit more vulnerable and to try and sort of kind of get guys to talk about their emotions a bit more, uh, I think would be a, a lot better strategy. And what were the warning signs along the mental health line that kind of popped up on your radar to give you that heads up that there's something going on here that gave you that hindsight for now, you know, working in a different industry altogether? Mm. Uh, from, from my own perspective, for me personally, I, I think I, I, I withdraw a lot. I prefer my own time a lot more than I think I would if I was in a good mental space. So to recognise that withdrawal and to think that I just want to spend time by myself or I just want my own time, that's something that I noticed that if I was spending time with other people, my triggers would be, my, my fuse would be quite short, the triggers would be quite widely spread, and I would find myself reacting a lot and not being able to control that, 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 that anger or that energy. So that, that's one of the main warning signs, I think, is, is the fact that I just want to spend so much time by myself and I don't actually want to do anything with loved ones or family or, or things like that. So, yeah, for me personally, that's, that's what I take note of. But it can mm. be lots of different things. I mean, it, you, I saw guys spending a lot more time with the crew because their uh, relationship at home was, was, was going downhill and, and that is a mental battle in its in its very specific sense uh, in the domestic kind of dynamic so it's just so it's such a complex topic hey? it's, it's such a you could i mean you could talk for hours about it and it's something i'm really passionate about the particularly you know veteran 
mental health and suicide and men's health. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a really it's a really interesting topic. Have you had much experience in that sort of area or with friends or in terms of mental like health or particularly? Yeah, just like um, any involvement with it. I mean, with the with your job or or anything like that. Yeah, I um personally, and I chatted about it on my episode with with Aaron on the Iron Will podcast is uh, a couple of years ago, I went through a pretty intense divorce with my wife yep. that I'd married, you know, high school sweetheart. We were together 10 years and that mm. all kind of evaporated for me what seemed overnight. Um, and then there was a bunch of other complications that I you know, won't go into just here. If you want to find out, yeah. people, listen to the episode. I go into details mm. there. Um, but basically, my whole world didn't just get turned up upside down. It got old control deleted and nuked. Um, from career, which I'd you know changed to accommodate and everything, and then after it blew up, it was kind of like, well, what now? Um, and for me, my my process from that was, and again, my entire friendship group, again that support network for me, um, had only ever known me in that couple, and mm. that couple, and also another couple that was in that friendship group, got nuked at the same time. Draw your own lines. What happened there, people? Wow. Yeah. So everybody was just like, um, didn't know what to do with me because it was so yeah. foreign. It was the first time they'd ever had somebody in their world close intimate that had gone through this sort of separation, divorce, and whatever. So they didn't know what to do, which isn't on them. It's just it's their first time experiencing. You know, as, as someone said, the hardest thing you've ever gone through is the hardest thing you've ever gone through. Mm. Um, regardless of whether you compare it to other people's experience or not. So for them processing, it was really hard, but they wanted to talk to me about their feelings and whatever about it, which was like, cool, I recognise real early. If I'm going to process my own shit, I can't process yours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need to do you. I need to do me. Mm. Um, I can't be the counsellor here. This is That's not healthy. That's a negative feedback loop because in doing that, I'll be neglecting my own process. So yeah. Looks like I got to get out of Dodge. Yeah. So I went and traveled Europe for a couple of months and then over to America, did a huge road trip over in America for a couple of months and pretty much pissed off overseas for four yeah. to six months, um, which is great. Like a lot yeah. of people are like, no, take the money from the house and just invest it and keep working. And I'm like, nah, fuck that. I, I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> like, that's, I'm like, seriously, what's more important? My mental health in the long term or finances in the short term? I'm always going to be able to find a job. I'm not stressed about yeah. that. Money, I couldn't give two shits, to be honest. As long as I can eat and do what I want to do, fine. Mm. I can make sacrifices where need be. Right now, my number one priority is to get my head right and sort my shit out. So if that means I've got to spend money to go travel and get out of Dodge and, and process and figure out who I am again outside of that environment that's now drastically changed, you know what? Stuff it, let's do it. What's the price of entry yeah. to that? No idea. Don't care. No price is too high. So did that, came back to, to Melbourne, hung out with a group of friends. And um, there was one particular brunch where everyone was talking about something. And I'm like, what are you all talking about? I'm like, oh, it's this thing. Oh, but it's for couples. And we didn't want to invite you because it might be awkward. <laughs> and people, this is going to be super un-PC, but I, don't quote me on this. Is I was like, cool. I'm single, not stupid. I may have used a different word. Um, <laughs> What? We're still friends. You guys have known me for 10 plus years. What the shit? Come on. Yeah. But they were just like, um, we just didn't want to make you feel awkward because it's a couple thing. I'm like, we're friends though, aren't we? What's the shit? What? Yeah. And, so, and, yeah. and it's not like you haven't realized that you're single. It's like if they don't invite you, they're like, oh, well, yeah, that's a reminder. Of course you know, don't you? Exactly. So I'm like, yeah. okay, so for my next stage of processing, now that I've come back and gone, oh, this is the, this is, you know, Brendan, a, a, you know, a true north, you know, the compass is now not out of whack. Oh, if I want to keep it this way, this is, they're still processing their shit. This is, this environment, again, the neural pathway is just the, the familiar habits. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm going to need to do something different here. So, moved to Sydney for 12 months. Yeah. Freaking hate yeah. Sydney. I've lived there, Sydney yeah. siders. I'm allowed to comment. <laughs> Getting around Sydney is a metric nightmare. Good God. That, that yeah. oh. <laughs> like, like Melbourne's not great, but seriously, like getting around Sydney oh, yeah. can go jump. Like, I'd yeah, I agree with you there. Rather crawl over, crawl over gra glass than, yeah. than Sydney again. Um, look, the weather's nice. I'll, I'll claim that. But like, it was necessary for me. But I think also yeah. for my friendship group, it was necessary for them to move on and process. Yeah. And I think that's something. And I don't know whether it's maybe even a similar thing amongst veterans. Is there's a level of like cool processing with 
people that are in a similar environment, that's good to an extent. But is it the same with veterans in that you need to do your own processing? Because if you're only doing the feedback loop of wasn't that shit, wasn't that terrible, wasn't that shit, wasn't that terrible, that that's not necessarily healthy to a point. Cool, venting and commiserating and that's good, but you got to, I guess, almost in the loop cycle up and out of it um, rather than just staying in it and reminiscing Mm. until the cows come home because they don't. Yeah, that's that's right. Especially when you discharge as well. I think there is, it is how you described it. There's a there's a real frustration and, and barrier to break through to get out of the conversational bubble that you can only have with veterans. Because you know there is a, I wouldn't just say veterans, I just say people in the army, or you know. And then there's smaller bubbles within that where you might have experienced something overseas, which is that little bubble, and that might be exclusive to not even your platoon, it might be your section. Do you know what I mean? Like there, so there's these bubbles where people find comfort. And to get out of that, yeah, the, the challenge is to engage with something on a, on, on a meaningful level that is non-military related. That, that, I guess, is the objective. If that's your spouse or your family or your parents or your siblings or yourself or whatever it is, that's the challenge. It's so subjective. But it's yeah. similar, I guess, Mike pissing off overseas for a while was it comfortable was it the logical thing to do no but it was necessary Mm. for the goal that i was after and has that been a similar experience for yourself since you were discharged and going in and and working offshore for a while like how was that yeah i think that transition i I guess yeah it was i I certainly missed that community a lot Mm. um but towards the back end of my army career i i wasn't placed in the right positions to they didn't. They didn't treat me. I, I think well enough. I can go into details of this, and not to mm. not to whinge about it too much. But I can go into details as to why. But they didn't put me in these positions that really set me up to really want to stay in the in the military. How so? And it's to do. So there's. I'm not sure if so. There, there can be a bit of a long winded answer to this. So so feel free to give go me back for on track it. Okay. No. So to <laughs> to kind of understand how postings work in in the military, mm. it's. Basically, you can put in preferences and it depends on availabilities in different cities. Some people might have been, you know, um, went to high school or whatever in, in Brisbane. So, they always want to stay in Brisbane and they try for Brisbane. But, you know, right. you might be lucky to get a few postings there, but you might have to go to Darwin at some point. You know, so some people just kind of draw lucky. So, other people don't. Um, it depends on job roles and stuff. There was... There was an incident overseas. Well, there was a couple of incidents overseas where my leadership was criticised based on being too, too kind of friendly with my soldiers. And I, I talked about this on on um, the Iron Will podcast. And it was one of those things where my hierarchy saw my leadership style very different to how my subordinates saw my leadership style. And I had a lot of care for my subordinates. I wasn't going to ask them to do anything they didn't want to do and they they did everything that I needed to do and there was no arguing there was no bickering there was no fighting and there was no um, disagreements there was a lot of respect both ways um, I, I feel I can safely say that and my hierarchy criticized that closeness that I had with my with my soldiers when I got back from Afghan um, I was on a promotional course to captain and that's out of about 250 or so um, officers and across the range of um, infantry or medical armour, special forces, um, or the, basically a whole bunch of officers coming together competing for uh, yeah, a month or so, academic, physical, all sorts of stuff. Um, I got the student merit on that course and not to blow my own trumpet, but it gives context to where I'm going with this. So this is a that was first place in academic and the, and the tactical um, scenarios. And... Student emeritus of that course traditionally gets pretty first choice posting wherever they want to go, basically. And, you know, their, their, their pathway is sort of where they want it to go because they've kind of earned that, that position of that, of that student emeritus or that, um, that, that kind of, I don't want to say honour, but it's like a, mm. it, it's a, yeah, it's an achievement. So I was expecting to, um, to, Go, have a particular posting. They sent me into regional New South Wales, uh, which was completely not where I wanted to go, into Orange, which was a reserve posting. Um, I felt that was a bit of a kick in the guts and I sort of I got a bit kind of sick of the, the political kind of aspect of it. 
And um, yeah, I just, I just pulled the pin. I was looking to kind of transition out into something new anyway. I, I, I ticked the box of, of deployment. I, I you know, managed myself well from my perspective as a leader. I made a heap of good mates and, uh, and I got out like that. So that, that transition was, was met by my, funny enough, by my hierarchy in Afghan emails saying, look, we're sorry we made the wrong sort of judgment of you. Um, if you ever want to get back in, I'll personally meet, re-manage your re-entry. And so it was, a, it, was a, it was a nice sort of, you know, tick from them after they realised that the achievement of that captain's course was, was no sort of small feat. So I guess to round back and answer the, the, the question, it was, it was a difficult kind of transition out because I felt like the community that I had in the army was, was that close community, but I hadn't had that real platoon exposure for a couple of years leading up to my discharge. So I felt really kind of disjointed. I felt a bit sort of like, you know, just like a sort of admin position that you traditionally get when you come back from a deployment. You know, they put you in training command or they put you in somewhere a bit more of a rest posting, So, which is fine, but I guess it, it helped that transition a bit better. And I enjoyed the new environment. You know, I enjoyed the, the civilian life. It was, it was novel. It was something mm. where I, could, I couldn't have conversations with people and not just talk about army stuff, and that was, that was really appealing to me. That's yeah, phenomenal. And then, how did you transition out and in to what you're doing now? What was that in, time in, period like? Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so I've yeah, I probably took about six or seven months off when I left the army. Um, just travel around, much like yourself. Just did the did the Americas, did the did the Europe's. Kind of just redlined it and, and got everything out of my system that I wanted to in terms of just partying and. Yeah. And being free because I was so constrained for so long by this, by this system, um, by this green machine in, in a way. And I think a lot of people who discharge can resonate with what I'm saying there if they're listening. But there was that. And then I uh, yeah, joined the FIFO kind of world. Uh, I, I enjoyed that time away initially. I enjoyed the time off uh, a lot, these huge chunks of time, a month-on-month-off kind of gig that I had. And... I did that for a while and there was a lot of travel and a lot of cool stuff that happened in that. But there was this point where I was looking at myself thinking like, okay, well, I'm not really enjoying the time at work now. I'm sort of waiting for that time away from work, my time off. I'm basically just wishing a month of my life would just disappear. And that's really not healthy. It's not a healthy space to get into. It's like, well, I can't wait for the day to go home. I should be, I should be trying to get the most out of every day. And that realization struck a chord with me. So uh, the start of the COVID kind of pandemic, like what was that, 2020, I, uh, I decided to uh, try for engineering. So I had to do a couple of things with the sciences and the maths to, that I didn't do in school, all those, all those classes that I wagged and didn't pay attention to caught up with me. So I had to do these like bridging courses to, to kind of gain entry into that course um, of engineering and, and yeah, decided to, to to try my luck at that, and we're almost two years in now. So it's it's slowly ticking away, but it's as a mature age student, that learning curve of that of that level has been a challenge for sure. But it's going to be a satisfying goal once it's achieved because of the challenge that's involved. Yeah, mm. Mm. there's a couple of things there. Yeah, so I'll give long, long no, no, it's good, <laughs> it's good. No, no, I'll go, I'll go with this one first. Is so why engineering? I, I've always been fascinated with concepts of physics and, and not so much the chemistry, but um, the way things work and the way things move and to have that conceptual understanding uh, as an interest and then to take it onto a, okay, let's understand the theory of it. That process, that technical detail really interests me. I don't know why... It, it stood out so much. My my mum was a was a, an electrical engineer. Um, I I always admired the thought processes and the ways that she um, articulated herself and communicated certain things. Most engineers I come across were <laughs> either completely antisocial or <laughs> yeah, there there was something sort of um, 
there was just something really interesting with the way their brains worked, even though their social skills might not have been there. But I wanted to try and maybe challenge that uh, that status quo and and um, and go into engineering just from a purely enjoyment perspective. I, I want the theory of it. I don't even really know what I will do specifically for the long term, but just to have the the knowledge is is occupying me and giving me meaning at this point. So. Mm. Until that ceases to, that meaning ceases to exist, then I, I think I'll just, yeah, I'll keep going with it. Yeah, awesome. And you mentioned yeah. that, like, you know, mature age student going into that study environment, you alluded to the fact that it was a challenge. What's been the biggest challenge in going into that study environment for yourself? I think competing against some young guys ah. like and girls. Yeah, that's, I mean, some of the, I mean, they're teaching coding in school these days and it's, it's right. one of these things that, Hey, we had lemmings on a computer yeah. when we were in school, okay, yeah. if we're lucky. You know, yeah. <laughs> floppy disks, well, I mean, kids, floppy, floppy disks. Floppy disks and snake on your phone on your 3310, you know? Was, maybe 3315 got snake too, if you're really <laughs> yeah. lucky in space. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's this there's this, um, there's this, this gap, I feel. I, I wouldn't say it's like, – I probably, probably would say it's a disadvantage to me to, to come in and compete with these guys with the maths and the, and the physics and the chemistry because there's just some seriously smart kids out there. Like, there mm-hmm. is. They're, they're brilliant. I think that my, my strength in leadership, you know, management, planning, communication, I haven't really got the chance to display that yet because the fundamentals need to be learnt in the first couple of years yeah. with anything. So, so, you know, you're learning all your, all your mm. basic laws and all your, all your rules and all your mm. equations and everything. And then, it, and then eventually maybe, you know, the fourth year or certainly when I graduate, that's when I can, you know, fuse the experience that I've had before with the, with the uni stuff. So I guess the, to answer your question, the biggest challenge is, is, looking at them and going, okay, well, not to be do- too disheartened by how much um, they seem to get it so quickly and I seem to slowly trudge through to get to that same right. point. So yeah. that, that, that's, that's a, a bit of a disheartening feeling, but it's just one of those unique challenges, yeah. There's so much more digital native to yeah. us as we kind of grew up half internet, half not internet. Is I still remember yeah. dial-up and being in yeah. high school and going on the internet for the first time when I was in high school. Not yeah. primary school, those of you listening under 30, yeah. your Muppets. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. There was a time where you used to have to wait for a website to load for a good five, yeah. ten minutes and then realise you picked the wrong thing and go, shit, that was a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, true. Good old thing. Oh. Um, I guess it's kind of maybe in the background with both your fly-in, fly-out and also your deployment careers. And I guess to, to put it super bluntly, what has been the relational price of entry in, in both those lifestyles and never being in one place for a long time. Mm. How hard is it maintaining friends and friendship circles and relationships when you're so transient, especially when you're someone that's really, con- you know, aware of uh, your mental health and maintaining that and looking after that and being a steward of that when, you know, both those careers and lifestyles are very anti-establishment <laughs> yeah. uh, of, of, of friends that are in proximity, not necessarily far away from a phone call or a text message, but just that proximity of relationship. How do you manage mm. that? Yeah, it, that's actually something that I, I battled with a bit when I discharged the army because I, I think a lot of young guys that join the army will resonate with this, that you join up and the people you went to school with, you know, every three months or so in the army, you get a couple of weeks off, you come back home and you seem to come back to the same thing. It's either you know, the uni sort of lifestyle that your friends are doing. And then I used to come back for these three-month sort of increments and I'd see my friends not really changing too much, whereas I feel like I would be working towards something pretty pretty massive and big changes and had some really big experiences and what felt like really big experiences in comparison. Well, not to interrupt, yeah. but like, you know, you got uni mates. What's the worst? What's what's the most intense thing that they've been through while studying at uni? Like they got a parking fine. Cool, <laughs> cool, bro. You've been on deployment. 
I'm not going to go yeah. into detail, but dare say that you've seen something a little bit more intense than a parking fine. So it would be hard to relate to. So I cut you off, but no, no, but that's exactly right. It's it's hard to relate to, and I feel like my friendship group that I went through high school with, I, I just separated away from them, and I just found comfort in my in the army boys and in that group. So that was quite a clear that was quite a clear sort of um, uh, diversion. After I got out. I was sort of lost because I, you know, most of the guys I was working with was in Townsville, and then I was some suddenly in Perth, and then I was basically stuck with—I won't say stuck with—but like I was surrounded <laughs> by you know my my high school mates, which yeah, you know, my are my dear mates, and I, it took it took me a while to kind of reintegrate with them, and, and and just like you said with with your mates when when you got back, they sort of look at you as this outside person, and they're like oh we didn't know how to deal with you or they and i find i don't know if it was the same is like you to to them you are their last deep experience with them (laughs) and if your last deep experience with them was high school Mm. you could have gone around the world and done everything that you've done dare say seen some action and come back and in their mind you're still high school you yeah. Because that was the last yeah. deep experience that you guys had together where any of your personalities were cha- challenged enough to grow and develop. So, yeah. And I f- is, that, is that part of the challenge that a lot of um, return servicemen find hard to reintegrate is because mm. the world's kind of not a lot's changed. They're not aware. Whereas they've been through these deeply transformation, deeply transformationary, that's a sentence, Brendan. Gee, what time is it? it, it um, is now, experience yeah. as it is now. Um, mm. Is that part of the challenge in, in reintegrating society and almost like, I dare say, almost there's resentment there because you guys, I don't know. Yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. There's a, there's a, there's a, almost like it's lost like, in translation. I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's, there's like a, you don't understand what I've been through, but you don't want to be arrogant to say that, as in like, you don't know what I've been through because everyone's going through their own journeys and their own battles. And who's to say that mine is, you know, subjectively more difficult than anyone else's? It's right. You know, you could spin any story to make it seem more more hectic. But yeah, there was that sense of not really, no one really getting you, and no one really understanding what you went through, unless you could talk to someone that went through it. And I think that's where the the bubble comes in, and that's what's hard to break out of. I personally am not someone that really likes to um, assimilate with the green mentality of, of the army, and you know, I don't. There's a certain look and address and a way of acting and a you know right. just a, a way of operating that you still hold on to those values of the of the I don't say values that's probably too deep but the it, those traits of of the military right. habits that, yeah habits habits that's right yeah so you know unhealthy habits is in like you know just feeling like you're so sort of uptight or you know every conversation has to be about military stuff or just monotone kind of talk and just I don't know. I, I I broke away from that. I identify with more of the like the the freedom aspect, the surfer vibe, the kind of just the, the non-traditionalist army approach. Similar to what Jules said as well. And yeah. I wonder actually how yeah, much he's of a this, big surfer. Yeah. Yeah. How much of this is generational, do you think? To open that can of worms. Oh God, this is how we yeah. did it. This is how yeah. you all do it. And it's just yeah. kicking the same shit downhill again because I mean, mm. and, and and not so. This is a a irreverent comparison, but I hear the same stories, especially doing this podcast, talking to tradies in particular that have been mm. apprentices. For example, having their tools nicked when they're an apprentice because that's just what happens, and yeah. the same shit happens when they like it's, it's just a cycle because is how you know even trying to someone that was a nurse like this is how I got treated when I was my first year is and they just repeat the yeah. cycle and it's almost this vindictiveness of like well I used to treat it like my superior never related to me and showed empathy so why the shit are you doing that mate come on put yeah. your head in like yeah. is, is there that element not even generational then that's almost just you know the cyclical nature of us needing to get out this is how it was for yeah. me so it's only fair if I do it to the next group let alone generation I think it's I think it's such a, I have a, like a, a bitter, I'm going to say hate's a strong word, but a hate for that, that mentality of just because, uh, you know, it happened to me, I need to do it to you. I think it's the most destructive and illogical pathway to success. Stupid. You want. It's, it, it's stupid. Yeah. 
and it's 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 a roadblock and it what it, it was certainly a thing that I was exposed to but I think I was quite conscious of the leadership that was um with the, the, the people that led me and I, I tried to form my own leadership styles based off what felt good and what didn't feel good mm. and I think that was one awareness that I did have quite consciously throughout the whole process is of picking people and, and and picking little bits and pieces of what I the way I liked about him and what I liked about her and and, and these sort of different leaders that I came across you try and mesh them to your own style because leadership is a is an extremely malleable and subjective experience and privilege that you get to act on and you can do it in whatever way you want really some are more effective than others but there's certainly no you know it depends there's on two, the situation yeah it depends on the situation there's two styles that can achieve the same objective kind of thing but to, to go back to the question that you look at like the long-term veterans the vietnam vets i mean they came home from their deployments hated and 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 they weren't well received and they weren't um liked by the local community and that's had a lot to do with the way that the conflict was was advertised and, and portrayed to the communities but imagine i mean i couldn't imagine coming back and, and feeling like the entire country just hated you um and you know it was only within the last maybe decade or so that those veterans have actually just started to wear their medals or get them redone. Uh, and, you know, I've taught, yeah, talked to, talked to one. I remember when I was in the army very, so 2009, so a while back, but a long-term veteran, he right. basically didn't wear his medals only in the last couple of years. Cause he only he basically had the courage recently with the Anzac days and how they're done to, to, to wear them again. And it's, it's really sad. And I think there's that generation of just hard-ass dudes that, you know, that's the generation that do, you know, want you to experience it how they experienced it and it's never going to be how they experienced it. They always had it harder. But it's not just exclusive to them. And, and there's, there's exceptions in every category as well, of course. But I think it comes down to an individual personality thing. You're either that guy or girl or you're not. Yeah, that's, I couldn't. I can't even begin to fathom what that would feel like coming back to that reception. Oh, yeah. Let alone how that would affect me if I then stayed within the green machine, as you mentioned, in leadership, and then how that would affect my leadership moving forward. Mm. It would forever discolor your worldview and your leadership style, whether you're aware of it or not, because um, mm. that is a... Uh, the time served was an impactful time, but then you're coming back to the people that you were defending in combat yeah. and you get that. That's, yeah. it, it, I mean, feeling resentment? Yeah, I get that. Does that justify the actions? Hell no. But the equation of that happening, yeah, I, I, I can see how it would have deeply, and tell me if this is wrong, scarred, a lot of mm. people and affected them yeah. forever. Yeah, I, I think I think one of those things that the, the the mindset of I want you to experience it, what I'm what I've experienced. I really think if you look at it, those people just want to be heard. They want they want to be they want to have an opportunity to tell yeah. their story, and I think that's what it comes down to. Because yeah, why else? I mean, you think about it. Why else would you? Why else would you want to tell someone that your time was harder? Other than the invitation to potentially tell your story, so true. That's true. Um, something that probably is more common to that answer than than anything else. Is just the the insecurity of how they maybe feel now in relation to how they did feel when they were going through, and maybe the jealousy of that experience that that you're having as a trainee, which is a great sort of great position to be in. You're learning; it's new, and people miss that. You know, like people do miss that. So. Yeah. It's a hard one. And, and how do you solve that? Yeah. Like, I, don't, yeah I don't think. Yeah. That's tough. So that's a, that's a million dollar question. Um, mm. Speaking of tough, what was the, what has been the hardest leadership moment to put it in that sort of leadership framework? Because it seems to be a theme about, you know, what we've been talking about today. What has been the hardest leadership moment in your, I guess, you know, whether it be military career or, you know, since being discharged, mm. uh, I think is there one standout? 
there's a there's a couple of standouts. I think one that one that strikes the the biggest sort of urge to to talk about is is when we lost one of our guys overseas. It was um, Maddie Lambert, who those guys that are, are listening that knew that that MTF three deployment will understand, but. He was um, blown up by an improvised explosive device, which is a, um, I think Jules has talked about it before, and for those who don't know, it's just a roadside bomb or um, something that you step on and it initiates a charge and it basically, depending on how it goes off, can, can kill you or, or maim you. But he stepped on one of those. Um, it was quite fairly dislocated from where I was at the time. Um, and... That happened on a night where we also got called out to not to not to go into too much detail to to drag this out too long, but we got called out to a uh, to investigate a, a drone picture that had been taken of what was apparently some explosives being dried out on the ground. Now that looks like just some white kind of uh, some white. It looks like a big bed sheet, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's the ammonium nitrate that was this, this dried out when they prepare the bombs. And basically, this drone took this footage, um, fed it to our patrol base, which is the closest one. It was about uh, it was about midnight. Um, actually, no, I was probably a little, a little bit earlier than that. But anyway, I had to wake up um, a section, and we w- ended up walking to get some eyes on this this um, area to try and sort of intercept it. They weren't making bombs or anything like that. So we walked through the night. And into the morning, about eight hours or so, through IEDs and all sorts of stuff, nothing went off. But there was a there was an IED that was stepped on that actually defilated, which means it wasn't connected properly. So the main charge didn't go off, but the um, but the deck cord and basically with a with a wire that was you know, just misconnected, that would have basically wiped out the entire section. So I would have been dead. Um, and a lot of a lot of the platoon, a lot of the section would have probably been dead as well, um, and that would have been a, probably one of the I think one of the bloodiest days since Vietnam in terms of um, casualties. It was just down to a faulty cord. It was just down to a faulty from what from what the engineers assessed on the ground. Yeah, so because it deflated and didn't go off. Um, but I mean that that stuff happens. But just it was that sort of realization, and I'll link these two stories in a, in a sec. But basically, we continued the walk. Um, to try and achieve this eyes on on this objective, and when we got there, it was actually bed sheets being dried out on the on the ground, and it was this moment of extreme frustration of just why the fuck did we just walk through in pitch black, almost kill ourselves, and now and now what? And at that point, you're trying to manage that frustration, and then you get um, some chatter over the radio that there's been a there's been a KIA, there's been a bomb go off. Although we didn't actually know that Maddie had been killed at that moment, but there was this kind of rumor circulating around that someone stepped on a bomb just in another province um, next to us. Got back to the patrol base after sort of coming back with my group that I was with, and just that. Just that sense of um, just blackness in in the air, and trying to work out how you're going to tell the platoon that a very very charismatic and well liked person in the battalion, who everyone knew, was now dead, and it was this real difficult leadership moment where you had to sort of get everyone down and sit them down and basically and, and tell that tell that story. And it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was difficult. And actually, I think, and this is going to sound really strange, um, and hopefully people can, can, can see the vulnerability in this, but it almost, it almost makes you laugh in that moment. And I know that sounds silly, but I'll explain it in that it's too emotional. It's like, it's too emotional. You know, sometimes, and anyone that's ever experienced this, when they're like, you almost feel like you need to smile at something like that. It is a weird thing that happens in your body, and I literally felt laughable. Like, literally laughable, yeah. And I felt, I felt a bit of that, and it was that personally to try and manage that 
moment and that that conversation and that weird psychological battle that I was having with myself was probably the single most difficult moment in leadership. Um, that's one. I can tell another one if you want. <laughs> There's uh, when the Afghan National Army, um, who we're mentoring over there, they they have a you know they're normally pretty good. You know, like they're they're not too bad. Some of them are complete. You know, it, it's difficult to get them on patrols and things, but that's our job there. We're there to mentor them. We're there to train them and eventually hand the country over to them in a, in a military sense. They have a threat that can basically, they can be infiltrated by um, the Taliban and the Taliban can rise up within their ranks without um, the actual organization knowing. And when they get the call, the, that person who is a, um, who's a, that infiltrator will basically turn on the, the Australians or, or the Afghan National Army or that sort of thing. So it's this kind of really, really deep threat that you don't know who you're talking to. And uh, I was mentoring an officer over there and we, we worked quite closely throughout a couple of months. And um, he was actually Taliban and no one knew. And then one night he, uh, when he was on an overwatch position, um, basically unleashed with a 50, 50 cal machine gun down into the patrol base and shot a couple of guys and jumped in a Humvee and, and fucked off basically. So that was his night where he got the orders by the Taliban. You know, he obviously got an extraction point given to him. And to, so to get back to the question of why that was difficult, for me to lead in terms of my guys wanted to rip the heads off these Afghan guys and you certainly didn't want to mentor them. That's, that's one thing you didn't want to do. And um, to get them to go the next day and to treat them with respect, even though they just almost killed you know, your mates, they have actually shot your mates. And uh, that, that was a really difficult thing to do, to basically try and convince the group that, hey, like, we've got to keep going with this. So that was another, that was another battle that I, that I had. Yeah. How do you do that the next day? Well, you don't try and push it too hard, like, and you don't try and force people. I think one of the biggest things with that situation, and you can, you can, you can make it analogous to a few different things, but there's the situation of if there's something massive that changes, don't, don't try and push your, like, change too quickly. Like, I could have gone, like, all right, guys, we need to get on patrol straight away, da 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 It just... It just doesn't work. You, you gotta, you gotta give people space to to heal, and you have to give people space to have the conversations with their mates, to vent, to go to the gym, to go for runs, to call home, to, you know, whatever it is. You have to give them that time period, and you can't really interfere other than letting them know that it's okay to talk to you and there's yeah. support there. That emotional injection is the only real. So I tried to do that. I just tried to give them space. Um, I tried to harness that, the fall back on, well, I, I think I've earned the respect of them enough that they will come around and they'll understand that, hey, this is also difficult for you, boss. Let's, mm. we can do this, all right? Like, yeah, this is, this is us. This isn't about them, like that sort of thing. So that, that's what you kind of rely on. But you have to do that work before that happens, you know what I mean? So, yeah. You can't turn that on a dime. That's, that's can't that, turn that, it. not bought. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> That's that's a lot. That is that's that's <laughs> yes. huge. And I yeah. think you know, as as time whittles away. Final question: Time machine. If you could travel back to chat to twenty year old you, <laughs> what advice would you give twenty year old Jack, if any? Um, that's a great question. Or you just give him a high five and go go get him, champ. Yeah, I think I think one of the things would be to not be so hard on myself and to like to try and to th- and to take more photos. Like, interesting. I, never, I like that because because I I never really had I never made the effort to take many photos and without like uh, being in a few other people's photos on the trip, I could almost say that I wasn't there. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, show me a photo, but well. Shit, I don't actually have to. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but there were so many great experiences that I'd, I'd catch up with. It was an Anzac Day and they'd tell a story about something and I, 
they tell me that I was there, but I didn't have the memory of it. And it would just be a simple fact of a photo would bring that back. So take more photos and, and journal and, and, and just record, record your life because there'll be a point that you'll want to look back on it in, in detail, I think. But I wouldn't change anything. I'd probably give them a high five, yeah, because, like, yeah, we did all right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's yeah. that's that's great advice, um, Jack, mate. This is this has been phenomenal. This is this is blowing me away. Thank you so much for your your time and you've spoken about empathy, but I feel like you've definitely shown a lot of vulnerability in in this chat. So thank you for that. And for those listening, I hope that there's some takeaway takeaways here for everybody any last things that you want to add in jack before we wrap this up Nah, that's it like i'm um happy for people to get in contact if they want more more details and stuff but um but yeah no thanks for having me that's it's been fun it's been really great to have a chat and and yeah just to, to share some of these stories so thanks for the opportunity really appreciate no it everybody it's been the price of entry i've been brendan it's been jack thanks for listening have a great one see you guys Thank you.